All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 24, and we're going to continue. I'm going to backtrack just a little bit for those listening. And I do want to take an opportunity just right now before we start just to say thank you for those who listen on radio and those who have been uh, listening to us afar. And, um, you know, we've got people listening to us. I mean, we've got one letter I think we're going to post on the site, you know, from people in New York and literally all over the world who are downloading our sermons now and listening. And I appreciate you guys doing that. That's what it's for. And we hope that it's encouraging you in the Lord. And so we just want to get you to where you can self-feed, you know. And so we're real thankful that the Lord is using it. So let's go ahead and uh, open our Bibles. Once again, we've already done that. So let's look at verse. I'm going to back up to verse 12 and just get a running start at it. And of course, Paul, you know, is before Felix. And so he says in uh, verse 12, And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets." Paul denied every accusation that the Jews were making against him, except for the accusation of heresy. And I do think it's interesting, and I think I elaborated on it the last time, that even to this day, there are those who believe that Christianity is nothing more than a Jewish sect, and that really it's more of a Jewish heresy than it is anything. It's sad to say, but even in the land of Israel, If you have Jewish blood, you can get your citizenship there. Unless you're a Christian. Most people don't know that, but it's it's a fact. Yeah. You if if you claim if you have Jewish blood and you want to apply for citizenship there, but yet you are a Christian by faith. No. Unless that policy has changed recently, which I don't believe it has, they ain't gonna let it happen because they still view Christianity as a Jewish heresy. It's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. And they certainly did at this particular time. Look at verse 15. He says, And have hope toward God, which they themselves allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. If you take a note, you need to make note of the fact that he says that the resurrection will be of the just and of the unjust. Paul made his confession first of his beliefs in the prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. Made his confession and belief of even the law, which speaks of Jesus Christ. Last week I was speaking with a local pastor. And I'll try to be kind. I won't mention names. And he made the statement in our conversation when I started quoting some Old Testament to him. Well, I don't mess with that, he said. I don't mess with that Old Testament. I just stick with the new. And I went, wow, really? I said, you do realize, brother, that Paul the Apostle in the book of Hebrews said that the Old Testament was a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. I said, matter of fact, let me put it to you more bluntly, more plainly, more to the point. 
You will never understand the New Testament once you've read it unless you have read and understood the Old Testament. Why? Because it explains everything that happens in the New Testament. It is a fulfillment of everything that was spoken in the Law and the Prophets. That's why it's important. We don't study the Old Testament so that we can look at the dietary laws and bring ourselves back under the bondage. We look at those things because we look to Jesus Christ as the deliverer who took us away from those things, perfecting us by grace through faith alone. That's why it's important. The whole Word of God, the whole counsel of God is important. It bothers me when those who stand behind pulpits, be them big or small, belittle any part of the Word of God. And when they don't understand the Old Testament and its purpose, it's very important. Matter of fact, I can't wait till I can take us through the book of Leviticus. Most people think, oh, Leviticus, it's a great book. When you start seeing the pictures of Jesus all the way through it, I had a man this morning who came up to me once again, and he said, Doug, do you have any papers on Melchizedek? I said, brother, there's all kinds of them online. Go download them. You know, because he didn't understand. Melchizedek is a Christ type, and it's a picture of Jesus and how that relates to him because he was a priest forever, you see. Very important things. And so it's important that we know those things. But Paul believed all those things. He believed the things which were written in the prophets and in the law, but he mainly looked at it as concerning the resurrection. When we get to the book of Revelation, we're going to see that there's actually two resurrections. One of the just, as I said, and one of the unjust. Now they're separated by about a thousand years. And the resurrection is an interesting study, and most people don't give it a lot of thought until they really begin to study through the scriptures. And then sometimes confusion arises, and you begin to hear some strange doctrine concerning the resurrection. First resurrection, the first one that happens, when you start studying through and you start looking at what the Jews believed, and then you see what Jesus taught, all the way through to what Paul taught concerning that, you begin to see that the first resurrection is not a single event, as some people believe. Most people, maybe some of you sitting here, maybe some listening by radio, they've always thought of it as a single event, that there's going to be a resurrection of the just when Jesus returns, and that's it. Not quite. There is a resurrection, absolutely. But it's more in a kind of a stage. Why? Because Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. And he's already been resurrected. We know that. It happened on the third day. He got up, as it was, out of that tomb, having accomplished all that he came to do and to return to the Father. But there in chapter 19, we also, of Revelation, we see... The ending, if you will, or the finalization of the resurrection of those who were martyred during the Great Tribulation period. 
And so we know that in the middle between Jesus and them, there's us, you see. And so it's really three events that culminate actually in one action, and that is one resurrection, but kind of a gradual thing in that it happens in periods, not just one major event. Do you understand what I'm saying? But a lot of people get it really confusing. And so looking at the resurrection is important because I want you to have a good understanding of it and to be able to answer that when people talk about it. Flip your Bible open with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to read a long passage of Scripture, but necessary, I think, in understanding what the resurrection is about. Now, growing up in my household when I was a kid was a mixed bag of religiosity. My dad, actually his uh, father, had been involved in spiritualism, if, for those of you who know what that is. It was very popular at the turn of the century. My grandfather was actually a medium. And so there was a lot of that kind of crazy stuff mixed with other things. Uh, it was a mixed bag. But my father was very much into spiritualism and believed it. And one of the beliefs that they have in spiritualism, and not just spiritualists, but some Christians, is that the resurrection of the dead is not a physical thing, that it is a spiritual thing. And so for a lot of the years when I was a young man, you know, growing up, because I was so convoluted in what I understood about God. I had such a mixed bag, and I don't have time to go into it tonight. But it was just a mixed, mixed, confusing, let me put it that way. But even when it was talking about the issue of the resurrection, I had this very strange idea because I was taught this by my father that the resurrection was not physical. So in a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body as we're going to, to read. And so I held on to this erroneous doctrine until I ran into this 16-year-old kid who was a born-again believer, had sat in a crazy place called Calvary Chapel for about three months, and when he came out of there, he was like a little walking Bible I mean, he could just quote, and, and it really irritated me more than it did anything at the time. And we got into this discussion about the resurrection, and he was insisting that it was physical. And of course, I'm a man of reason. I always have been. I like being analytical. I think that that has benefited me in my walk. But at the time, I said, that's impossible. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body, you see. And he kept insisting. I said, look... If that was the case, then when Jesus Christ returns, he'd have to bring your spirit with him. He said, it says that. What? He said, it says that. I said, where? Thessalonians. So we went to Thessalonians and read it. Sure enough, that's what it said. <laughs> then it began to make sense. Here in a little bit, we're going to be talking about the issue of relearning things after having learned something wrong. It's easier to learn it right the first time than it is to go back and correct it, but we won't go to it. Let's look at 1 Corinthians first. Look at chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 35. And, of course, Paul the Apostle writing to the Corinthians, and keep it in mind, the letter to the Corinthians is a corrective letter. He's trying to correct bad teaching, bad doctrine. He wants them to understand clearly what's going on. He says, but some man will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Pretty straightforward question. You know, if the dead are raised, what kind of body do they come out of the grave with? 
Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not alive, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not the body that shall be, but a bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon. Another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in corruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man of the earth, earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, such are they also that are earthly. And as the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. If you're taking notes, make note of that. It cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. The word sleep there means die. But we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Mark that time. Every time you see it, say change. Mark that. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So what is it, Paul? Is it physical or is it spiritual? Because there's so many people who really still don't grasp it. I was reading a commentary earlier tonight. And I was shocked because I know this guy. And I really had never read his views on it. And he went to this long elaboration about how it was sown in natural bodies, raised a spiritual body, and in my father's house there are many mansions. Now, I do agree with him on this particular point that 
when the Bible talks about mansions, I know a lot of people, there's been a lot of songs written, you know, I got a mansion just over the hilltop. You know, and we, we, tend, we tend to think in that way. But when Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But lo, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I shall return again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you might be also. The mansions he's talking about is that body, not built with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's what he's talking about. I have to admit, every time I hear one of the prosperity guys talk about what a great afterlife, you know, in riches and mansions that we're going to have, we're going, if I'm eternal and I have need of nothing, what use am I going to have for some physical... I mean, I don't know about you, but man, I hope that we can like explore the universe if it's still around. I'm not joking. I mean, I, I, I'm really looking forward to having a celestial body. Because the Lord himself, remember the Bible says, when he shall appear, we shall see him as he, for we shall be like him. We're going to have a body just like Christ. Now, when he was raised, he had a physical body of a sort. Now, was it the same that was sown? No, it was changed. It was glorified. You know, when you see him in the upper room, after his resurrection, the Bible says that the disciples were gathered together and the door was locked, and Jesus appeared in the midst, which means he had a physical body because he told Thomas later on, touch and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bone as you see that I have. But he walked right through that wall. Now, believe it or not, in physics, there's actually a scientific explanation for such a thing. We call it particle tunneling. If you accelerate a mass to the point of light, the speed of light, you could pass it right through that wall without ever affecting the wall. So if you ever wondered how God operates, he operates at the speed of light. The Bible says in him is light and there is no darkness at all. But it's also one of the reasons why you can't see him because the only visible spectrum of light that we have is only about 5%. And then we need help seeing that half the time. But the resurrection, Paul said, it is sown in corruption. Jesus was the only one who never saw corruption. It's not fit that he should. He was God in the flesh and did not see corruption, but his body was still changed when he came forth. Matter of fact, if you remember right, Mary didn't even recognize him. Thought he was a gardener. And I love the fact of how she recognized him when he said, Mary. She knew his voice. She knew his voice, Lord. And she even dropped down to touch, don't touch me, he said. Not yet, for I've not yet ascended to my father. It was right after his resurrection. So he was different. Yet he still bore the scars, which he still bears to this day. Yet in his physical body, we too, will have a physical body of a sort. Now, is, is it going to look like what you have? Dear God, I hope not. I hope not. I'm telling you now. You know, when the Lord raises it, just as Jesus was not recognizable, I doubt that we will be. We'll know each other. Oh, how's that? We always acquaint knowledge with sight. I want you to keep that in mind. We always do. 
But yet the Bible says that when then that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part. For we shall know even as we are known. I don't think I'm going to have to see a face that I recognize to know that it's you. I'll know it's you. You'll know it's me. It's just the way it is. I mean, the Lord, it's going to be a different thing. It's far beyond anything that we can comprehend. I have not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man. The things that the Lord has prepared for them that love him, but he has revealed them to us in this time, in this last day through his son, Jesus Christ. We have no idea, but I know it's going to be good. It's going to be awesome. Now turn with me if you will. I want to finish this up just talking. Once again, this is not an in-depth study on the resurrection. We will do it one day. But I'm just giving you a cursory thing so you can at least see what some people believe and what the Bible actually teaches. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. One of my favorite passages, I preach from this every funeral that I've ever preached. I always preach from this when it's a Christian. When it's not, I just preach the gospel. But if it's a Christian's funeral, I always preach this. But here he's talking about that time when Jesus returns we call it the rapture, the catching away, the snatching away of the church, to be caught up. Verse 14, he says, for if, if you take a note, underline that, biggest little word in the Bible, if, most people don't like ifs, I like ifs, if, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, them also which are dead in Jesus will God bring with him. You see that? The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. When you die, you instantaneously, if you're in Christ, you go to be with the Lord. But where is that, Doug? I don't know, but wherever Jesus is at, that's where you're going. Jesus said, where I am, there you might be also. And wherever Jesus is at, has got to be great. Had a guy ask me one time, where's heaven? I said, I don't know, but Jesus is there. Is it up? I said, I don't know. But it's somewhere, and wherever it's at is where Jesus is at. And where Jesus is at, that's where I want to be at. And so he said, wherever I am, there you might be also. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so there's a question for you, if you believe that. He says, even so them also which are dead in Christ will God bring with him. For this I say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not go before them which are asleep. Now I translated that a little bit for you because he's, in the King James it says will not prevent. Or what it means is pre-event. We, we will not do before. We will, you know, we're not going to go before them. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, the shofar, and the dead of Christ in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And I love verse 18 the most. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So there you have it. That's, that's what happens. But here's the argument. The atheist, the resurrection denier, says, well, Doug, you see, 
What about all the people who have died? Let's, what about all the guys that's been buried at sea, you see? Because they just become fish food. And then the fishes eat them, you see. And then here comes a tuna boat along, catches the tuna, and the next thing you know, it's in a can. You eat the tuna. Guess what's in you besides mercury? Yeah. Yeah, somebody was buried at sea. You got it. You think you're just going, that's disgusting. Well, that's what they argue. So you got in your body, and of course, if you bury somebody, I don't know, you know, years ago, let's think about it. Sort of been here for roughly 10,000 years, regardless of what the evolutionists will tell you. But that's still a long time. Been a lot of billions of people have come and gone. A lot of people have been buried. A lot of people have turned to dust. A lot of people turn into dust which sinks into the water table. I know you don't want to hear this. I was a chemist for years, and I hate to tell you, water is pretty much contaminated. I know you don't want to hear that. But it's just true. That's why you drink by faith. But let me, let me make it worse for you. There's so much nasty stuff in water. I heard a guy tell me one time, well, I have an artesian well. I'm going, it's the worst water of all. Why? Because it comes from an underground river, and rivers travel for miles, and they go under factories and everything else. And if you've never tested it for pesticides and herbicides and every other evil thing you could think of, yes, even the molecules of people are in there. <laughs> Drink by faith. Does it taste good? Yeah, well, there you go. The fact is, though, is there's things in it. There's chemical things in it that pertain to people. As disgusting as that sounds, the fact is that argument is correct. So the argument goes on that if that's the case, then how could, you know, how could they, I mean, what's the Lord going to do? What about transplant people? What about a person who has another somebody else's heart? Who gets the heart? Uh, this is a real argument. I'm not joking about this. This is how crazy it gets. Who gets the heart? You know, who gets the, the corneas? You know, what are, this is their argument. And so they come to the conclusion that, oh, you're right. That doesn't make any sense, you see. Therefore, the resurrection must be spiritual. It must be something other than this body. Now, I agree that it will be something other than this body. At least, we're really hoping. No, it will be. I'm just joking. It will be. But it's going to be changed. It's going to be glorified. Just as Jesus' body was glorified, was not recognizable, except for his voice, your body will be glorified. It probably will not look the same. I do believe it will rise in perfection, whatever that might be to the Lord. I'm sure, you know, that it'll be muscular if you're a man. No, I don't know. I have no idea. But it'll be perfect in the Lord. And, and, and really, there's no argument. Listen, I mean, when you think about it, the Bible says that God knows every hair that's on your head, right? Every hair, even the ones that you've lost, Roger. God knows where they're at. They're laying on a bed somewhere, out on the ground, out in the battlefield someplace. They're around, but God knows. I really believe that. The Lord knows every hair on your head. And if he knows every hair on your head, does he not know every molecule in your body? everything that makes you, you. And the fact is, is he does. 
So I don't find any credence to the argument that when they start mixing up body parts and start talking about chemicals being here or being there, and oh, you know, is that, is that, that's too tough for the Lord to separate them out. I don't think so. I don't have a problem with that. I think the fact is, is as the Bible says, that when the Lord returns, those who are dead in Christ, he will bring with him. And then their body will be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and they will be raised first. And then we, if we are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That is the resurrection. Is it physical? Absolutely. But not physical in the way that we understand it. It is physical, though. And we will have a physical body. You know, so I reject the idea that there is some spiritualization, you see, to the resurrection and that it's only a spiritual thing. Totally erroneous according to Scripture. And there's more that we could go into, but we don't have time tonight. But look at verse 17. And this, of course, Paul got in trouble believing and teaching in the resurrection. He says in verse 17, Now after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. And of course, we know he was making his collection through the Gentile church. Whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult. He wasn't there with a whole bunch of people. There wasn't a crowd, and he wasn't causing any problems. Who ought to have been here before thee, and object if they had any ought against me? Or else let these same here say, if they have found evil in uh, doing in me, while I stood before the council. Except it be for this one voice, that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead. I am called in question by you this day. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. We're told here that Felix had a more perfect knowledge of the way. How did he know about Christianity? and about Jesus and those who had put their faith in him. We don't really know. The fact is, is that there is some secular history that says that Simon Magus had befriended Felix. They had become good, close friends. And Simon Magus, of course, spent time among the, the uh, Christians and had written about them. And, and so he, you know, they would set up long hours into the night you know, talking and discussing these crazy people who were of the way. And, and you know, in secular history, it says that this, this was how Felix knew about Christians and, you know, what they believed and stuff. Now, is that accurate? The problem with history is that we're at the mercy of the historian. So it very well may be true. I don't know. But we know that Felix did have, according to Scripture, a good understanding of Christians and are of that way. Now, Felix, and I've talked about him, we talked about him last time, he's a very interesting guy. As you remember, Lysias was the captain who had rescued Paul from the mob, and I mentioned it before that Felix was the first ex-slave to become a governor in the Roman Empire. And of course, that was because of his brother Paulus, and Paulus had you know, went and interceded to, to uh, Caesar Nero on his behalf, and Nero listened to Paulus and, and gave him his leave, and then eventually promoted him 
to uh, governor. And so Tacius had written, and I mentioned this before, the Roman historian, that Felix governed like a slave. But he went on in his writings and said that with tyranny and violence, Felix governed the people. So even the historian Tacius didn't write much good about Felix. Felix was a scoundrel. He was a criminal at heart. And so one of his weaknesses, as we're seeing here, was that he was a man who would defer decisions. He would procrastinate. He'd listen, but he never would really make much of a decision. He would simply go, well, he'd defer to somebody else, and, you know, lest he should make a wrong one, I think. I'm not sure what his reasoning was for that, but he was a procrastinator. Not like too many people that I've met. I mean, I've met several that are procrastinators, you know. They used to sell years ago when I worked at a, a company, was a retail grocery store many years ago. I was just a young pup, but I was one of the managers there. And we used to sell this little thing called a round to it. You ever see one? And it was always funny because when I first saw it, I didn't even know what it was. It was just hanging there and it said round, it said to it on it. And I kept asking the store, the, the head guy said, what is a to it? He said, it's a round to it. What's a round to it? I really didn't understand the joke. And then finally he said, hey, it's for procrastinators. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do that when I get a round to it. And so you would hand somebody, here's your round to it, get a round to it. Felix was a guy who never found a round to it. He was just one of those guys that constantly procrastinated. And there are people who procrastinate about the Lord. There are people who constantly defer to some other day. And it's heartbreaking when you see that, when people hear the gospel over and over again. There's even people, gang, sitting in the church. And I mean the church in general, not any particular one. I'm sure they're in every place. Some probably listening to this broadcast, driving down the road, sitting at home. Need a round to it when it comes to the Lord. Because they keep hearing about Jesus. They know it's true. Their heart is convicting them. And yet they keep putting it off to some other time, you see. One of these days, one of these days, and sometimes, sometime, or some day never comes. Look at verse 23. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty. And that he should forbid none of his acquaintances to minister or to come to him, which was a good thing. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Once again, he, just, he was curious. Because why? He had knowledge of the way. He knew about Jesus Christ. It isn't interesting. I've had a few acquaintances, and I have one even now, who, when I get together, loves to talk about God. Knows I'm a preacher. Knows I'm a teacher. Knows I'm on radio. Knows my history. Loves talking about it. But he never seems to get around to it. Now, when it comes to being wholly devoted to the Lord, and he freely admits this, that he's a bit of a wishy-washy when it comes to Christ. And I was like, it's a curious thing to me, you know? Why you would even admit to such a thing? So he's certainly not a hypocrite, but yet he sits in church every Sunday. 
I don't get that. And so often there are people who just never fully commit. But Felix wanted to hear Paul again concerning his faith in Christ. Drusilla, his wife, was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. I think I mentioned that before. And this is the same Herod, of course, who had James, the brother of John, beheaded back in Jerusalem. He's also the same one who had Peter in prison about that time. Remember when the angel went and released Peter from prison? Same guy. He's also the one, though, who went down to Caesarea and went in and, of course, gave a great speech. And all the men of Tyre said, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. And we're told that an angel of the Lord smote him and his body was consumed with worms. Same guy. Very interesting. So this was Agrippa I. The daughter, or the, his daughter, was Drusilla. She had been previously married before to King Isaiah, but she had been divorced from him and, of course, is now the wife of Felix. Verse 25. And as he reasoned, and I want you to take note of that word, and every time you see the word reasoned in the Bible, underline it, make note of it. And as he reasoned of what? Of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled. He trembled. And answered, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might lose him. Wherefore, he sent for him the oftener, or more often, and communed with him. I think it's funny that Felix wanted to be around Paul. He wanted, I mean, sure he wanted something from him, but he loved listening to him. He loved it. And when he heard the gospel, when Paul was reasoning with him, you see, he trembled. We've come to a place in society today, especially in the church, where reasoning is a lost art. You know, we hear today so often that common sense isn't so common anymore. Well, reasoning is something that has went out the window. A lot of times I hear people tell me that they've never won anybody to Christ. And, I, and I'll ask them, you know, I'll say, hey, well, tell me how you do it. How do you go about it? How do you go about witnessing? Tell me how you're doing it. And a lot of times people think witnessing is trying to convince somebody of their sin. You know, I got to, if I can convince you that you're a sinner. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't work. Okay, keep it in mind, the Bible says, on some have compassion, making a difference. But on others, say by fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. I kind of relate that to the verse that says, know ye therefore the goodness and the severity of the Lord. But my other argument of the reasoning thing is that people, if you ask them, are you a sinner, most of them will say, yes. In my case, everybody I've ever asked, they'll say yes. 
They already know it. They already know their life's a shambles. But notice what Paul did with Felix. It said he reasoned with him about what? About righteousness. You see, this is what most people don't know about the gospel. When I always start, I'd say, you know, do you believe in God? Let's start there. Do you believe that this is the Word of God? Because if you don't believe this is the Word of God, if you think it has no authority, I can quote this thing all day to you, and it will mean nothing. Believe me, I've had people, and some of them claiming the name of Christ, sit in my office, come in for counseling. And all of a sudden, the Lord would give me a verse, and I'd say, well, you know, there's an interesting passage in the Bible about it, and if I give it to you, will it matter to you? And I've had people look me right in the eye and say, no, not really. Then what are you doing here? I don't have time for this. Go do your own thing. Let me know how it works out for you. Because if the Word of God doesn't mean anything to you, if it's not your authority, then I have no argument for it. I have nothing to reason from. Because this is what Paul did. Paul reasoned about righteousness. When you're talking to somebody about the gospel, asking them what is required to get into heaven, that's where I always start. What, what's required? Well, the Old Testament's very clear. What's required to get into heaven is perfection. You have to be perfect, flawless in every way, not just physically but mentally and spiritually. Well, that eliminates all humanity. And it certainly does. That's the point. When you reason about righteousness, we're all in the same boat, you see. That puts you on the same level with the person you're talking to. Doesn't make you any better than them. Doesn't make you any worse than them. Why? Because we're all wretched at heart. We come into this world wretched. We're born that way. Sin does not make you a sinner. We sin because we are sinners. It's just that, it's that simple. But most people have it totally backwards. They think because I do bad things, therefore, that makes me a bad person. No, you're a bad person. That's why you do bad things. A man steals a horse. Does he steal a horse? Does that stealing it make him a horse thief? Or did he steal it because he is a horse thief? My reasoning is he stole it because he's a horse thief. That's why he took it. A thief steals because he's a thief. The act of thievery doesn't make him a thief. He, the act of thievery is a result of his thievery. Sin is a result of a sinful nature. We come into this world... There's none righteous, no, not one. We are all as sheep which have gone astray. The word of God is clear. The depravity of man is fact. It's not something that's out for grabs. It's a fact. So Paul reasoned with Felix about righteousness. How can you be righteous? I can hear Felix making his argument. As so many people do, well, you do good things. I'm not all bad, Paul. I haven't killed that many people. I've had people tell me, well, I've never killed anybody. Why do they always jump to that? It's like talking about a guy who's got, it's like a, you just, yeah, I think you got a cold. No, it might be cancer. What? Blow your nose. You know what I mean? It's like, come on. You always want to jump to the worst thing possible. I had a guy tell me one time, it was, it was years ago, and I'm, I'm reasoning with him about this. 
And he goes, so you're telling me that even though I haven't killed 15 people, that I, you know, that, that, I'm, that I'm going to hell? I go, wait, well, f- do you want to kill 15 people? Where did that come from? You know, I mean, is that just an arbitrary number? Did you just pull that one out of the hat? Is that like the cutoff for you? If I decide to go killing people, it's going to be 15? It's going to be the cutoff? Are you nuts? Where does that go? But they always want to pick the worst thing possible. But from the scriptures, you can point out very clearly, listen, bro, I don't care if you don't smoke, you don't chew, you've never went with a girl that do. You might have taken flowers home to your mother. You might have done everything right in your life. You might not have uttered one rotten word, ever tasted the the taste of alcohol. But if you don't have Jesus Christ covering your sin, you will die in hell with the worst. Why? Because without Jesus, without that vicarious covering that we have through him, there is no hope of righteousness because righteousness is required. It is a perfect situation that is required to be in heaven. We don't possess it, but Jesus earned it. How? Because he kept the law perfectly both in his person and in his heart and in his spirit he even said I do always those things which please the father I can't say that neither can you but in Christ I can in Christ I have so that's reasoning you know you sit down and reason with somebody when you say look brother we're all in the same boat We're all wretched, regardless of how good or bad you think you are, or you think I am. Without Jesus, we're all headed for the same place. We're all headed for hell. And it's not God's will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. God wants us all to be with him, in spite of what he knows about us. And Man, that's, whew, that's a relief, you know. Thank you, Jesus, you know. But so often people don't want it. Paul reasoned with him from the scriptures. From the scriptures. Even in Isaiah 118, which Paul knew well, the Lord said, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The Lord is offering beauty for ashes, you see. He knows how you are. He knows he made you. He knows how corrupt man is. He understands what that original sin that our great-great-grandfather Adam did has affected us. But he also knew what the cure was. From the foundations of the earth, the Bible says, Jesus was crucified on our behalf. In the book of Acts, we have a great illustration of what it looks like to reason with somebody and to really be the evangelist that God has called us to be. You don't have to turn. I'm just going to read it for you. It's in Acts 17, verses 2 and 3. You might remember we covered it not too many weeks ago. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them. And three Sabbath days reasoned 
with them out of the Scriptures. What Scriptures was he reasoning out of? The Old Testament. It's all they had. Opening and alleging that Christ must have suffered and risen again from the dead and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. That's evangelism. That's how you do it. You reason with people. Reason with them. You know, there's guys out there, good men. They're good men. And I don't, I don't want to belittle or to say anything disparaging about their technique. But they take the law and they really believe in their heart that if I can convince a person that they're a sinner, then I can convince a person that they need Christ. I'm not saying there isn't a time for that. I'm sure. I've run into one guy in my whole 35 years of ministry. I ran into one guy who said, I've never done nothing wrong, Doug. Really? <laughs> I had a heyday with him. He got saved. But most people know they're sinners. Most people do. And if they'll listen to the Scripture, and you can reason from it, then the Holy Spirit has something to work with. And as you begin to reason from the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit comes in and He takes that word of life that you're trying to offer. And he begins to convict the world, this person in front of you at that moment, of sin and of righteousness. And they begin to feel that twinge of conviction. It's what Felix did. He felt it. He trembled. To the point, though, and this is the sad part, that he said, go away, Paul. When it's a more convenient time. What he meant was that when I no longer feel that twinge, then come on back and we'll have another conversation. It was uncomfortable for him. It was very uncomfortable for him. Just as it is so often when you're talking to somebody about the Lord. They get uncomfortable. They want to procrastinate. They want to put it off to another day. I would tell anybody who's like that, If you've been putting it off and you've been listening. Maybe you sit in a pew every Sunday. Maybe you go every time the doors are open. But you know, and the Lord knows, that you've never really, really trusted Jesus. And your life really is more of a shambles and a sham than it is one of faith. I would encourage you today, quit putting it off. Felix kept putting it off and putting it off. Later on, he winds up doing something very crazy. Maybe we'll get into it next time. But he winds up getting fired by Nero himself. They wanted to execute him. He deserved it. But his brother once again interceded for him and he escaped that. But sometimes people don't escape it. Time is clicking. There's a 
law in metaphysics that talks about the repetitiveness of anything. And when you've been doing something over and over and over and over, you create a pattern in your mind. It's like a woman who can knit. And I've, I've met several. And if they've been doing it for years, I mean years, they could do it blindfolded, listening to the radio, never miss a stitch. And it would be patterns in it. Why? Because it's been there over and over and over. And that pattern has gotten deeper and deeper to where they could not not do it. You understand? And so often it is with those who keep rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. It becomes a pattern. There's been many studies done that show that 9 out of 10 people usually come to Christ in their teens. Very rarely. I've only known a hand. My grandmother was one exception. She was 83 years old when she came to know Jesus Christ and was radically saved. Radically. But the heartbreaker for me as a minister was to go and I would go up there and take my guitar and just sing with her. And, and I had to listen to her cry because she felt like she had wasted her life, living a way that was pleasing to her and not pleasing to the Lord. That was heart-wrenching. I was thankful that, that she finally came to know Jesus and I could hear her in the hallway. When I would walk into the hospital, I would hear her all the way to singing Jesus Loves Me. She had a little bucket she would turn over and keep time on it and, and she would play that thing like a drum and, and I could hear her and the nurses were all you know, taking note of it. But that's rare. It's rare. So often we have that rut so deep that we resist, and the longer you put it off, the harder it gets to do it. I would encourage you, if you've never made that decision for Jesus, do it today. Don't wait, because every time you put it off, that rut will get deeper. That pattern will form. And it will get harder and harder and harder to turn away from it. Let's look at verse 27. But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Felix was just one of those guys that he was always trying to please somebody other than who he should have. He knew about the way. He knew about the Christians. He knew about Jesus. But he was more concerned with pleasing men than he was with pleasing the Lord. We have no record, no history, to say whether Festus or Felix ever gave his life to Christ. Oh, he loved to listen to it. He wanted to hear it over and over and over. Because he knew that those were the words of life. But he didn't want to give up his corruption and everything that made him who he was in order to gain eternal life. Don't make that same mistake. Father, we love you. And Lord, we thank you that you are long-suffering to us. Not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance, Lord. 
changing of our mind about Jesus. And just acknowledging, Lord Father, the vicariousness of his life, the beauty of his life, and the mercy and grace that he has bestowed upon us for absolutely no reason other than your love for us, Lord. Lord, I ask that you would take this message. I pray, Lord Father, you would touch the hearts of those that need to be touched. And I pray more, Father, that you would help them to make that decision that they would turn from their ways, Lord Father, unto the living God through Jesus Christ. We love you so much, and we thank you, and we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.